This morning, I actually have a different kind of lesson than what I normally give. Um, and that's not to say I'm abandoning what I think should be spoken on Sundays. Uh, but that's just to say maybe um, the type of speaking might be a little bit different. Typically, on our Sunday mornings, uh, we gather as believers, right? Now, sometimes there may be some here that are not necessarily believers, but the message is directed at believers, right? We're trying to encourage ourselves through the week. We're trying to reflect on Jesus and his truths and and really challenge ourselves with living as disciples, right? That's really what we're trying to do on Sundays. And I am trying to do all of that this morning, but I'm going to come at it maybe from more of a philosophical side than what is usual. And I don't say it to say that we won't talk about Scripture because I'm anchoring these points in Scripture. I want that to be clear, but... I want to talk about some implications of some philosophical ideas, right? And so with that, um, this morning, we'll eventually get to 1 Corinthians 15. That's going to be one of the last verses that we look at uh, in the day, uh, in the morning, I guess is the best way to say that. Um, But where I want us to start is actually in Revelation chapter 1. Richard's actually been doing a cool series because this year we've been trying to focus on the promises of God. Um, And we started in the Old Testament looking at how God always keeps his promises and how he doesn't change. If he says he's going to do something, he does it, right? If he says he's not going to do something, he doesn't do that, right? And Revelation, really, as Richard's been walking us through these lessons, is really God, again, emphasizing some promises, right? And especially in the first couple chapters of Revelation. So I want us to look at Revelation chapter 1. And part of uh, this section is really even before he gets to speaking to the churches that we've been reading about in Revelation. But in Revelation chapter 1, listen to this section. Verse 10 beginning. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. This is John, right? He's writing Revelation. And he says, And I heard behind me a loud voice like a sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Well, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like the flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze. And when it had been made to to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And uh, And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now, if you're just going to like read Revelation, this is clearly a portrait of Jesus. I mean... There's only so many ways you can say it without saying this is Jesus, right? And it seems like John says it in every way without ever saying this is Jesus. One like the Son of Man, one who is dead and is alive, one who has the keys to death and Hades, 
right? One who's got a sword coming out of his mouth, right? So this is a picture of Jesus, but the important thing that I want us to focus on is kind of the promise or the the statement of Jesus, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the central figure or this is the central uh, or the key cornerstone, if if it were, uh, to Christian faith, right? I mean, this is it. Like, if you're going to point to one promise in the Bible, like if you had to boil down like your belief in God to one, probably a lot of us would say Jesus died and was resurrected. And like God promised that we would do the same thing, right? Like that might be like the key thing if you were to pick one thing that you'd pick, right? I titled this lesson uh, or something along the line. I changed the title a lot. I wasn't sure what I wanted to title it. And the title doesn't really matter. But what I ended up sticking with was after God's funeral, examining what's left for the killers. And what I mean by this is, isn't there kind of this idea that God is dead? Like in the world, just like God is dead. Like he's, he doesn't exist. We're too smart for that. So let's kill him off. Right? Isn't that kind of the culture we're living in? There's this guy named Frederick Nietzsche. You've probably heard of his name, even if you don't know exactly what he talks about. You've probably heard that name, right? Uh, He ended up kind of becoming a philosopher. Um, But what he's known for is that concept, that God is dead. Uh, He's the one that kind of propagated that and made that popular and brought some reasoning with that. Um, there's There's this movement called Nihilism, which is literally means nothingness, but it's typically defined like this. Um, where was I? Or it's kind of thought of this way, to, be, to build one's life kind of on this idea of despair, like nothing has meaning, nothing means anything, there's no purpose. That's kind of nihilism. Um, but literally just means nothingness. And that's kind of the natural outworking, right? If God is dead, that's kind of where you end up, right? And so... Nietzsche said, well, if God's dead, this is where I am. It's just kind of this nothingness. There's no meaning. There's no purpose, right? And he was born in 1844. He died in 1900. So he was only 56 when he passed away. He was not an old man. He struggled with health his whole life. And he grew up a believer. He grew up in a a Christian, so to speak, home. And it was at some point as working as an orderly in a war, uh, the Franco-Prussian War. I think that was it. Is that it? The Franco-Prussian War, yeah. At some point, as working as an orderly, right, he lost his faith, right? Sounds like a similar story to we've heard people like that, right? You go through some traumatic time working as an orderly in war, and you come out battled and bruised and beaten, and some people get stronger in their faith, and some people lose their faith through that process. Nietzsche lost his, and he was a young man when he went through that. I say all of this to say... I want us to read, it's actually a parable that Nietzsche wrote. Um, So I know you guys don't have a copy in front of you, so just listen as I'm reading this. Nietzsche believed God is dead, and he tries to relay that in this parable. Okay, so listen to the parable for a moment. Let me pull it up. It's, It's longer, so just stick with me here, all right? Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. 
As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage or immigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Where is God? he cried. I will tell you. We have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how do we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Where is it moving now? Where are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually? Backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night actually continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? God's too decompose. God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all the, that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us, for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern to the ground, and it broke into pieces, and he went out. I have come too early, he said then. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of stars requires time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. The deed is still more distant from them than most distant stars, and yet they have done it themselves. It has been related further that on the same day the madman forced his way into several churches and there struck up his requiem adernam deo. Let out and called to account, he said, he is said always to have replied nothing but, what are all these churches now if they are not tombs and sepulchres of God? Uh, Nietzsche wrote this parable, and obviously he's the madman, right? He's crying, God is dead, God is dead. And people that don't believe in God are making fun of him. And so he tries to relay the importance of killing off God, right? The philosophical weight of that is like if the earth was unchained from its sun, right? Everything changes. And he says, we're spinning backwards and forwards now. We can go any direction because we've been unchained from this one that we've killed. That's kind of what he's saying in this parable, right? But did you notice it falls kind of on deaf ears? They're like, the people that don't believe in God are thinking, what is he saying? Right? He's just kind of babbling on. And he says, I've come too early. That's what's happened in the world. People have killed God for all these years and didn't realize what they were doing, right? And he says, it's already been done. You just don't understand the weight of it yet. And so the implication at the end of this is 
he's kind of ahead of his time. He's saying, God is dead, God is dead, and people don't really get it. And so when he goes to church and he's shouting that, they kind of kick him out. And when they say, why are you doing this? He says, churches are just sepulchers for God. Right? Don't we live in that culture that has done this to God? And though we don't always understand like what it means for us, it kind of leaves us spinning and unchained to kind of anything real. That's what we've done. And Nietzsche noticed this way back in 1880. How much further along have we kind of come since then in our thinking and in our culture, right? God is dead. I know that was a long parable, but I'm glad you guys stuck with me through that. I think it illustrates the point really clearly. Um, there was one time that someone <coughs> saying what Nietzsche said would be viewed as the madman, right? And this parable portrays him that way. But I don't think it, if this were declared today, you'd be a madman, right? I don't think you'd be portrayed in a modern parable as the madman. I think those in the churches were, are the madmen, right? And so th this morning, I want us to talk about if this is really true, like if God is dead and we've killed him, we've become too smart to actually believe in a God, what does that mean for us? I think there's three kind of main implications from this. So at the end of this lesson, it's going to kind of be left to you to decide. And I imagine most of us are here because we're believers, right? And maybe we're at different places in our belief. So maybe you're not having to decide which one of these am I going to choose? Am I going to believe or am I going to take these conclusions as my life? But maybe for you today, this gives you some uh, weight in why you believe what you believe. Because even philosophically, it makes the most sense. And that's hopefully what I'm going to share with you today. And as you relate to other people, right? And I think maybe this is our biggest takeaway. As you try to be a good example to people around you, and as you try to put yourself in their shoes and think about what they're thinking and try to relate to them, maybe this lesson will help you see where they're coming from. And maybe be able to share, help you share truths with them about what they're saying, right? And so here are uh, the three... I think, logical conclusions of God being dead. Man is God, right? Someone's got to take his place, and we're going to do it, right? The second one is that your body is your soul, right? There's nothing spiritual. It's all material. And the last one is that time is eternal, right? What we have here and now is what we get. There's no sense of anything after, right? And those are kind of the three points that I want to elaborate on as we go. But I think those are the three implications or the conclusions of if what Nietzsche is saying is true, that's what we have to understand. And so let's look at this for a moment. If man is God, if there is no ultimate, infinite, absolute being out there, then all we're left with is something finite, limited, and relative. That describes you and me, right? Finite, limited, and relative. So that leaves us with this question, who's going to play God? And I'm suggesting to you that man's going to take up that mantle. We're not going to let the monkeys do it. We're not going to let the raccoons do it. Like, if we killed God, we get to take his place, right? And so I liked this quotation. Uh, it's from a, an English journalist. His name was Malcolm Muggeridge. 
Um, but I like this quotation a lot. If God is dead, now listen to this. This is really important. If God is dead, somebody is going to have to take his place. It will be megalomania or erotomania, which is the drive for power or the drive for pleasure. Right? It's going to be one of those. Uh, so it will be megalomania or erotomania, the drive for power or the drive for pleasure, the clenched fist or the phallus, Hitler or Hugh Hefner. Isn't that kind of the dichotomy we're dealing with? If we kill off God, all right, now what, who's going to be God? Well, it's going to be man, and it's either going to be a man driven for power or a man driven for pleasure. So is our God Hugh Hefner, right, so to speak? Is our God pleasure? Is our God Hitler, someone that's taking power for themselves and we just kind of blindly follow because they're in charge? Somebody's going to take God's place, and who is it? Right. <clears throat> As quoted in the parable of the madman, even Nietzsche said this, must we ourselves not become God simply to appear worthy of it? Killing God. Right? And so if we're going to be the ones that kill him off, we're too smart for him now, then we're the only ones worthy of his position in our estimation, right? And so now we're the gods. This is, isn't this like humanism? Isn't that kind of the concept of humanism? I think humanism is defined as this, an outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. That is humanism. So now, if God is dead, we have to be humanists, right? You guys remember in the book of Genesis, the third chapter? Um, God has just created man and woman and everything else in the universe, that's ever existed, right? And he gives them really two commands, right? Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but also keep the garden, right? And which one do they falter in? Well, that serpent comes Eve's way. And he tempts her with the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, right? But in verse 5 of chapter 3, in Genesis 3, in verse 5, it says this. For God knows that when you eat of it, this is the serpent speaking. This is his temptation to Eve. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And listen to this part. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That, like, Satan tempted Eve with humanism. Like, you're going to be like God. Right? This idea of, if you're not going to let God be God and listen to him, you can be God and do your own thing. You make the rules. You eat of this. God doesn't want you to eat of it because you become his equal. Right? You'll know good and evil. Right? Humanism has been around for a long time. Maybe even since Genesis 3, this concept of like, you are God. You can do his job. You don't need him. Right? You know what this leads to, though? Like, Eve, like, succumbs to this thinking. What does it lead to? It leads to evil in the world, right? We know that Scripture teaches us that this is the moment that mankind is exposed to sin. And really, the rest of the Bible is about trying to overcome that, right? But even on a personal level, this is the moment that murder enters their home, right? Their children, because of this moment, like, 
kill each other and are killed. Right? And they have to deal with that. So in, in, in endeavoring, endeavoring to be God, man ends up kind of killing himself, right? That's what happens. When we try to be God, we end up hurting ourselves. And we see that in Adam and Eve's life and in their children's life and in every life after that, right? What, so I, I like this a lot because this portrays what happens when man is God because we're finite, because of, uh, we're relative, right? Because we're none of the qualities that God claims that he is, we're limited. This is a portrait of who we put in God's place when we kill God. Listen to this quotation as well. I'm sorry I have a lot of quotations that are extra biblical today, but I promise you they're all centered on biblical concepts and we'll keep coming back to scripture, okay? So listen to this quotation. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of a guy named G.K. Chesterton. He was like the pre-C.S. Lewis. He was the guy that influenced C.S. Lewis. Anyway, so he says this, the new rebel... And I want us to keep in mind this new rebel is who we're putting in the place of God. The new rebel is a skeptic and will not entirely trust anything. He has no loyalty. Therefore, he can never really be a revolutionist. And the fact that he doubts everything really gets in his way when he wants to denounce anything. Right? Isn't that our culture? Keep listening. For all denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind. And the modern revolutionist doubts not only in the institution he denounces, but the doctrine by which he denounces it. Thus he writes one book complaining that imperial impression insults the purity of women. And then he writes another book in which he insults it himself. He curses the sultan because Christian girls lose their virginity. And then he curses um, Miss Grundy. I don't know if you guys know that reference. It's like a uh, conservative, uh, godly woman stereotype. He curses... Uh, Miss Grundy because they keep it. As a politician, he will cry out that war is a waste of life, and then as a philosopher, that all life is a waste of time. A Russian pessimist will denounce a policeman for killing a peasant, and then prove by the highest philosophical principles that the peasant ought to have killed himself. A man denounces marriage as a lie, and then denounces Aristotle prolificates for treating it as a lie. He calls the flag a trinket, and then blames the oppressors of Poland or Ireland because they take away that trinket. The man uh, of this school goes first to the political meeting where he complains that savages are treated as if they are beasts. Then he takes his hat and umbrella and goes on to a scientific meeting where he proves they practically are beasts. In short, the modern revolutionist, being an infinite skeptic, is always engaged in undermining his own minds. In his book on politics... He attacks men for trampling on morality. In his book on ethics, he attacks morality for trampling on men. Therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposes of revolt. By rebelling against everything, he has lost the right to rebel against anything. Isn't that what we're living in? Like, I've never heard a quotation that more aptly describes my generation as millennials and people coming after me, like my younger cousins and stuff. This is us. There is no right and wrong, and so we can't say anything about right or wrong. And so on one hand, we're over here saying something, and on the other hand, we're proving it false. 
We're hypocrites. We're contradictory all the time. And doesn't it make sense that when we kill God and we try to make man God and we leave this kind of person to be that God, the world just kind of starts spinning and is not tethered to anything real, right? Aren't we starting to kind of start to see what that's looking like in mass, in politics, and in the home, and in our schools, and in our relationships? It's because we've done this, right? And I think Chesterton uh, hit the nail on the head when he was describing this. So that, that's what happens when man is God, right? And that's kind of what it looks like. What happens when we make the body soul, right? If there is no God, there is no spirit or spiritualness. And if there is no spiritualness, then all that is left is material. And so the body becomes what is ultimate and eternal, right? Like we treat our bodies as like everything. And we should. If there's no God, and this is all we get, and this is all that matters is what I have, right, is who I am, and so what this leads to is we try to, like, dilute emotions, right? Because they're vestiges, I think, and we realize this, of something greater. For instance, uh, if... I have a good example of this, actually. Listen to this. There's these two tourists that they go hiking... And they go and see this waterfall, right? And they're both looking at the waterfall. And this is what's said about it. When the man said that this waterfall is sublime, because one of them makes the comment, wow, what a sublime waterfall. And the other guy just says it's beautiful. And sublime evokes something deeper, doesn't it? It evokes almost a spiritual experience that this is pointing us to something greater that's what sublime is. This is a comment about that. When this man said that this is sublime, he appeared to be making a remark about the waterfall. Actually, he was not making a, a remark about the waterfall, but a remark about his own feelings. What he was saying was really, I have feelings associated in my mind with the word sublime, or shortly, I have sublime feelings. We appear to be saying something very important about something, and actually, we are only saying something about our own feelings. Really what this person was trying to do was trying to take the weight of emotions out of things. This person was trying to say, you know, this thing that I'm seeing that's physical and it's just a waterfall is making me see something greater, right? Like we might look at a waterfall and be like, wow, look at God's handiwork, right? It makes us feel something like that. Well, when we kill God and man is God, we have to explain that away. Well, really, you just feel this, and it's just some glands producing this feeling, and the closest you could come to describing it was this word that you think is sublime. It's not actually pointing you to anything greater. But don't our bodies even point us to something greater? Don't we have experiences that tell me there's something to this that's bigger than just the physical? Don't we experience that sometimes? And sometimes it manifests itself in a waterfall, or sometimes it manifests itself in a relationship I have with somebody that points me to some greater truth, right? But when our bodies are just all we have, and they are the eternal, then we have to dilute emotions to just be physical things. They can't point us to deeper things, right? And so we have that quotation. 
And so this is what happens. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about men without chests. It's a really popular quote, so maybe some of you have heard of it. In his book, The Abolition of Man, um, he says this, is, not uh, is it not excess of thoughts but defect of fertile and generous emotion that marks them out? Talking about these commentators making fun of the person that said sublime. He says, their heads are no bigger than the ordinary. It's just the atrophy of the chest beneath them that makes them seem so. And all the time, such is the tragic comedy of our situation, we continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. Right? If we make our emotions just some physical thing, and we keep telling people they have to be honorable, and they have to be kind, and we're telling them those emotions aren't really real anyway, isn't there a problem there? And that's where C.S. Lewis goes. He says, you can hardly open a periodical without coming across the statement that our civilization needs more drive, more dynamism, or self-sacrifice, or creativity. But in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. Right? We make men without chests and expect them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. Right? We castrate and bid the castrated be fruitful. Right? So when man is God, the body becomes the soul. Right? But our body is just physical, and so our emotions have to be something just physical. Yet, something in us keeps telling us, be these qualities, be creative, be honorable. But we're taking the legs out from under it by saying the things that are moving you towards that are not really real. Right? This is what happens when God is dead. Right? Lastly, or actually with this point, sorry about this, Mark chapter 8. Turn to Mark chapter 8 because I want to anchor these points in Scripture. When man is God, right, uh, it reminds us of Revelation 1, right? Well, God's not dead. He died but is resurrected. He's living and he has the keys to life and death. But Mark chapter 8, if our body is the soul, look at Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Verse 34 of Mark 8, And Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for mine and the gospels will save it. Here we are. This is the key point. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? When we kill God, we're trading out our soul. That's what we're doing. And we're making the body our soul. And Jesus is saying there's nothing in this world that is worth that trade. Right? Isn't that what Jesus is saying? And when we kill God, we're saying, I want to make that trade. Right? All right, lastly, time is eternity. There is to no tomorrow. This is a quotation. There is no tomorrow. The worms will devour your body and you'll commit your body to the great perhaps. Isn't that kind of what it is when we kill God? Time is eternity. Here and now is what matters. Right? The future is worthless. You must live for the now. 
There is no reason to hope beyond now because everyone meets their end. It is a fact and no more. That's it. When you die, it's no more fact than I ate breakfast. It has no more meaning than if I were to eat lunch later. It just is. And you're given now, and that's all there is to it, right? Turn to 1 Corinthians uh, 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm actually going to read the section of verses just before the section that Robin read for us. Verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life, only we are of all men most to be pitied. Did you know the Bible acknowledges that if Jesus wasn't raised, we might as well be doing all this stuff, right? It's kind of like time might as well be eternity because if Jesus isn't raised, all of this is just sad. What we're doing this morning is just kind of sad if Jesus is not the real deal, right? Now, what we started with, Revelation 1, Jesus says, I am the real deal, right? I am alive even though I was dead, and now I have the keys to death and Hades, right? Well, isn't that mean then those who kill God, who dismiss God, are to be pitied? Isn't that kind of the inverse of chapter 15 here? When we take time to be eternal, when we say there's nothing beyond now, that's sad. Because this text in 1 Corinthians 15 is saying, if Jesus wasn't raised, that's true. But he was raised. And there is eternity, and there is resurrection, there is something beyond now. Furthermore, there's no purpose, if time is eternity, if this is all we've got, there is no purpose in leaving a legacy or influencing others. There's zero, because there's no meaning to it. Everybody has their way about life, and that is it. There's no right or wrong. Really, the self-centered path for you was for you, not for them, because really every path is self-centered. It's just for you, right? And there's no meaning in it anyway. We all die, and that's it. This is what happens when you kill God, when you take him out of the picture. Picking back up in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 15. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus has overcome, you know, sin. He's our way of overcoming our selfishness, and so to speak, our killing God, right? Because I want to do what I want to do. So we kind of have a choice on our hands. First of all, if you're not a believer here this morning, and 
you're listening to this, um, you have a choice. Uh, are you going to choose God or are you going to choose Nietzsche? Right? Are you going to choose an alive God or a dead one? Are you going to choose Jesus or Hitler or Jesus or Hugh Hefner? Right? These are kind of your basic choices if you're not a believer this morning. If you are a believer, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about some of these things and let them sink in. And really, this should make the value of Jesus, even though we value him, right? Like when we think about the alternative without Jesus, man becomes God. And we have to deal with that hypocrite ruling, right? And then we have to deal with our bodies being it. That's pretty disappointing. I don't, I like my body, but if this is it, I feel kind of gypped, right? We have to deal with that. We don't because of Jesus. He promises something more. And because of Jesus, here is not forever. Time is just a creation. Eternity is what's real. And so, as believers, what you can do is begin to appreciate so much more all these things you don't have to deal with because Jesus is your reality. And he is alive. And as much as Nietzsche liked to proclaim it, he is in fact not dead. So this has been kind of a different lesson. It's been a little more philosophical than definitely as usual for me, but I think it's helpful to think about what it means, really. If God is not alive, this is what you're dealing with, right? And so I appreciate everybody listening. I hope it's been encouraging for you. I hope it's not been totally random and useless. I hope you find some things in it that help you in your walk and maybe even help you relate to other people as you try to teach them the truth. If there's anyone here this morning that wants the prayers of this group or wants to talk about something, uh, we sing this last song really as a time to, for you to kind of get up the courage to reach out to people. And if that needs to be the whole group at once, come forward and we'll talk to you about that and we'll help you in any way we can. Or otherwise, just talk to people around you and let them try to encourage you and help you. Anyway, let's uh, stand and sing. <laughs>